here this morning, and as Denise said, we're turning in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to listen to what Paul has to say to us there. First uh, Corinthians chapter 8. One of the dangers that Christians face quite regularly is becoming um, very proud of how much we know. Obviously, God has spoken to us in the Bible, and we put a lot of emphasis on reading the Bible and understanding what God has to say to us and studying God's truth. But nevertheless, there, there are quite a lot of Christians that know a lot of things, but nevertheless are quite insensitive in terms of how they live towards other believers. And even though they might know a lot of things and know a lot of truth, they're not necessarily very loving. And so what Paul is emphasizing here is that we not only need truth and to know the right things, but we need to be loving as well. And this is the problem then that faced the Corinthians. Because we've already seen that from the very start of the letter, they prided themselves on the wisdom that they had. And that often led them to boast about one leader over another. And they would say, oh, this leader, they are very wise. They, they can preach fantastically. And they would boast about one person over another. And it produced all kinds of problems that Paul has to deal with in this letter. But this pride in their knowledge produced all kinds of other problems as well, such as we're going to see today about them being insensitive. But um, a little bit of context is helpful to begin with. When you go back to first century Corinth, there would have been temples everywhere to idols of all sorts. And as part of everyday social life, people would have gone to those temples and ate there. The food would have first of all been offered to the idols. And then, of course, the idols wouldn't have eaten it because idols tend not to eat too much. And the people then finish the food off on behalf of the idols. So in, a, in other words, you're sharing as part of the idol's meal. The idol welcomes you in and you eat then in the idol's temple. Now, there wasn't a sharp distinction like we have nowadays between religious life and social life. We tend to divide these things up quite a lot. But in first century Corinth, everything was blended together. So you would go for a birthday or a celebration or something to the idol's temple to sit down with your friends and family and to take part in this idol, idol's meal. And so to, if, if you weren't taking part in that, you were basically cutting yourself off from a good deal of social life, certainly life with the important people in society. But when the gospel came to Corinth, people began to discover that actually there was only one true God. Uh, there was only one Lord, Jesus Christ, whom they worshipped. And he was the embodiment of the one true God, the one who revealed the one true God. And that then left them with a dilemma. They knew there was only one God, so what do they do? Do they keep on going to the idol's temple and eating with their friends and families? Or do they break away from that and insist on not taking any part to do with it? How compromised were they by actually going along to the idol's temple? If they didn't believe that the idol was real, if they thought it was all just rubbish, were they compromised by going along? And this is the dilemma then that faces the Corinthians in this passage, and they wrote to the Apostle Paul to find out his answer. Because evidently there were some in the church there who were saying to Paul, look, we know the idols aren't real, and so therefore it's not a problem for us to go along. We're not believing anything, we're not compromising ourselves, we're just enjoying the food with our friends. The problem, of course, that the knowledge that these Christians had about there being only one true God wasn't loving because it didn't take into consideration how other Christians were reacting to this. 
Other Christians who had been saved out of idolatry and discovered that there was only one true God would have been walking past and they would have seen these other Christians eating in the idol's temple and they would have thought to themselves, well, hang on, it must be okay for me to go along and eat in the idol's temple um, because that other Christian's doing it. And so they would go along and the boundary that they had had in their life between worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ and worshipping idols is suddenly stripped away and before you know it, they're sliding back into idolatry again and back into their old way of life. And so the knowledge of these stronger Christians was causing the weaker Christians to actually fall into sin. And Paul has to tackle that. But before I want to see what Paul has to say here, it's worth um, drawing a distinction between what Paul says here and what Paul says in Romans chapter 14. Now, a few months ago, we were working through the book of Romans, and in Romans chapter 14, Paul deals with a very similar issue. But there's some key differences, and I think it's important to point those out. Basically, in Rome, the problem was that you've got Jewish Christians who had been used to Jewish food laws, which were very strict, such as not eating pork. And you'd got Gentile Christians who'd got no problems with eating pork. And the problem was that in Rome, the, some of the Christians there from a Gentile background were being very insensitive and they were tucking into their bacon sandwiches or whatever they ate in those days. And it was causing the Jewish Christians to feel very offended by this. And the, the Gentile Christians were presumably trying to push the Jewish Christians on to have a bit of bacon or a bit of pork. And if the Jewish Christians did this, then they would feel that that violated their conscience. To them, that was actually sinful because they felt that what they're doing was sinful before God. And so Paul says, that unless you're doing it out of faith, believing that you're pleasing God, then it is sin for you. And so Paul has to put a stop to that. But what we've got here is different. Yes, you've got a similar issue about paying attention to one another's consciences and about stronger and weaker Christians. But the difference is slightly um, more extreme because eating in idols' temples was a, a bit more problematic. The early Christians got together um, in what's known as the Jerusalem Council, where several leaders got together in Jerusalem to discuss the problem of Gentile Christians and how they ought to live now that they'd come to know the one true God. And one of the issues that they had to tackle there was whether or not Christians should eat food offered to idols. And they said quite emphatically that Christians, Gentiles, Jews, whatever, should not eat food that had been offered to idols, precisely because it was so problematic. Um, and so Paul, again here, he's emphasising not that you can do it if you want to, as long as you do it in private, but Paul is actually saying here, you shouldn't do it at all, because it's wrong, it's, it's full of problems. And he's going to explain what these problems are. But with that in mind, then we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and hopefully we've got a better sense then of what's going on as we read the text. And the central issue that Paul is driving home here is make sure that your knowledge is matched with your love for other Christians. Knowledge and love go together. So let's see what Paul says. I'm reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 from verse 1, and I'm reading from the NIV. Paul writes, Now about food or sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. 
And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. And this is God's word to us this morning. So Paul begins this text by saying, now about food offered to idols, or concerning food offered to idols. And this is his typical expression when he's referring back to questions that they've put to him in the letter that they've written to him. Um, So they've written to him various things, and he'll pick up on these different points and say, now concerning this, nor now about this, and he'll offer his um, reasoning regarding the issue that they've put to him. And basically in this section then he tackles the the problem of food offers to idols and he he more or less continues it for the next uh, few chapters through to 8, 9 and 10 and and emphasises various points relating to that. But in this section, verses 1 to 3, he really emphasises the importance of love over knowledge and love is much more important than the knowledge that they've been emphasising. But then in verses 4, 3 to 6, he emphasises that truth is important. He's not trying to play love and truth off, truth off against each other. Truth is vitally important. And so in these verses, he emphasises what is true and what we need to know. And then in verses 7 to 13, he brings them together and shows what we need to do is put truth into practice in a loving way so that what we know doesn't then cause our brothers and sisters to fall into sin. And so this then is about trying to apply the principles of truth and love to the thorny problem of whether or not they should be eating in idols' temples. So first of all, like I said, he emphasises the importance of love in verses 1 to 3. And to do this, he contrasts it with knowledge. Knowledge is important, but it's not everything. And apparently then, these Corinthians had written to Paul... And they'd said something along the lines of, well, we all possess knowledge, or we all have knowledge. And presumably Paul is quoting this, and he's, he's saying, yes, fair enough, that's true. But presumably what they meant by it was that we all possess the knowledge that there is only one God, and therefore because we know that, then it shouldn't really be a problem to any other Christians in the assembly if I go and eat in an idol's temple, because we all possess this knowledge that there's only one God, and nobody's going to have any trouble if they see me eating in an idol's temple, because they know the idol isn't real. Now, Paul doesn't tackle the issue of idols and eating temples in head-on. First of all, he has to tackle the issue of how do we balance out what we know with what is loving for others. And so he takes a step back and he thinks about, let's think first of all about the importance of knowledge. And he says, knowledge, it puffs up, but love builds up. 
And that's an important distinction that he makes. Because love, it can give us a kind of sense of self-importance where we start to know certain things. And the more we start to know, the more we start to compare ourselves with other people and say, well, I know a lot more than that person there. And therefore, because of all my hard work and study and advanced learning, then therefore I'm better than anybody else. But love, on the other hand, it doesn't try to compare yourself with someone else. Love is when you're looking to someone else and you're thinking about what can I do for that person? How can I care for that person? And love is then something which is outgoing towards other people, whereas knowledge is something which directs us in and ourselves. And another problem with knowledge is that when we get a little bit of it, sometimes we start to exaggerate the amount of knowledge that we actually have and we think that we've got more than we actually do and so Paul says that those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know so they don't realize how limited their knowledge actually is and I'll come back to that but by contrast he says that those who are truly knowledgeable um, are those who truly love God it is those who are loving who are the ones who truly know God. And it's interesting, that's what we expect him to say in verse 3. We expect him to say it is those who are loving who truly know God. But he doesn't actually put it like that. He changes it ever so slightly. And he says, actually, it is those who truly love God who are known by God. And you're like, so why, why, why do you say that, Paul? Why do you not say those who are loving truly know God? But what he wants to emphasize here is that it's not their knowledge that's the important thing that has made them who they are. It is God's knowledge of them that has made them who they are. And this is, this is the order of the gospel. God knows us. God calls us to himself. And this language of knowledge in the Bible, of God's, God's election, God's choice of people to draw to himself. And God is saying... Uh, to us that he knows us first and therefore his knowledge is more important than any of our knowledge and we don't come to God because we discover all about him and therefore that's the basis of our relationship rather we come to God because he has known us and drawn us to himself and so God's knowledge is more important than ours and it's God's knowledge that produces love in us and that love then is more important than knowledge because it sends us outwards to our brothers and sisters thinking about how we can care for them rather than sending us inward to think about how clever we actually are. Now knowledge then can be a tricky thing. And one of the points that Paul has made here is that sometimes when we've got knowledge we think we have more than we actually do. Uh, and this is one of the things that I'm quite interested in, in in psychology. And one of the things that we study is a phenomenon known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but the Dunning-Kruger effect refers to the unusual phenomenon where people get a little bit of knowledge about a topic. They get enough knowledge to think that they know quite a lot about it. But they don't have enough knowledge to know what they don't yet know. They don't yet have enough knowledge to know how limited their knowledge or skills actually are. And so there's this dangerous point that many people reach where they think they know a lot about a subject, but they actually don't know very much about a subject. They don't know enough to know what they don't know. And this is in many ways what Paul's trying to say to us here, because he's very perceptive and he's pointing out that there are points in the Christian life when we think we know all about a subject and know all about how to apply it. And actually, we know enough to know some things, but we don't know enough to know what we don't know. 
And that's then a dangerous position because we then start to spin off our application of truth into quite dangerous directions. That was the case here in Corinth. They got this knowledge that there was only one true God. And they're like, yeah, we've got that true. And that then starts to spin off in all directions. So we can, we can go and eat in idols' temples because, yeah, we, we know that there's only one true God. And so they don't realize all the other complicating factors that need to be aware of. And, they, and Paul's saying to them, look, there's more to the question than just, is there one true God? And I think this is an important principle to grasp as believers. Um, to approach our knowledge of truth with humility, actually. Because I know that early in my own Christian life, and I'm sure we're all fairly similar, you, you come to certain convictions that you hold very strongly to. And they're often built on certain truths, but you spin them out in quite extreme directions. And as you grow in your understanding as a Christian, you start to realise, actually, there's things that I haven't thought of. And other brothers and sisters point out those things to you and say, hang on a second, what you're saying here is a little bit extreme. There's things that you need to consider as well, and it reigns you back in a bit. Now, I'm definitely not suggesting that we should approach our knowledge in a kind of uncertain way where we're never quite sure what we believe. I think we can be sure what we believe, but we've got to be cautious and, and sensitive and humble as we think about our knowledge, as we realise that we don't know everything as we ought to know it. And how we think everything should be applied isn't always the way it ought to be applied. And we need to do this together as believers in love, thinking together as to how we ought to apply truth and apply our knowledge so that we do it in a loving way. And so what Paul's saying here is that our knowledge is limited and therefore we ought to emphasise love alongside knowledge as well. But just because our understanding is limited doesn't mean that truth's not important. Um, it's very common in these days to downplay the importance of truth and to emphasise just loving one another. And Paul isn't at all trying to say that because in verses 4, 3 to 6, what he's emphasising is that truth is vitally important and we need to get that right. We need to build on that bedrock of truth. And that's going to help us make a decision about whether or not we should be eating in idols' temples. And of course, I know that's not a question that we've got burning in our minds. And I'll come back to that. So he starts with the basic truth in verse 4, and he says, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. These are probably things that the Corinthians had said in their letter. Like, an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. And they're saying these things to Paul, and Paul is more or less affirming them, saying, yes, they're right. They're absolutely correct. And Paul then starts to elaborate on these truths and think about some of the implications for them. And he says, that even if there are many so-called gods, for us there is but one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't just leave it there because he starts to then explain our relationship to that one God and all that he has done. And he says about the Father that he is the one from, from whom all things came and for whom we live. He is the one who has created everything. He is the one who has designed us for himself. And we need to think about our relationship to him in terms of what he expects from us, how we ought to please him. And of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says that he is the one through whom all things came and through whom we live. Again, he is the one who is the agent of creation. The Father uh, used the Son to create all things. And it is through the Lord Jesus Christ that we find spiritual life. And so what's emphasized here is that we are utterly dependent upon the one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, upon our for existence, our spiritual life, and we exist entirely for this one God. And even though Paul doesn't explicitly spell out 
at this stage, I think what he's implicitly saying is, when you're thinking about your knowledge of the one God, then you need to think about it in more care, in more detail. You need to think about the fact that, yes, there are all these uh, false idols, there's only the one true God, but you need to think about the fact that you're designed for him. Um, You're designed to please him. And you can't just use your knowledge to just please yourself and do what you want. You need to then start thinking about, well, what does God want from you? If you exist for him, if you live through him, then you need to think about how you actually use that life, that existence, in order to live one that's pleasing to God. And so that you're actually applying truth in a way which pleases him and actually cares for the rest of God's children. And then just as a quick aside, it's very interesting that Paul here, he's writing around about AD 53 and AD 54, and he's got a very clear understanding that both the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus, are both fully God. Now, you talk to some people and they'll come up with all, they'll, they'll tell you all kinds of rubbish about how people didn't have any understanding of the Trinity until, what, like 300 or something stupid like that there. And already in Scripture, AD 50s, and obviously way before that, Paul's got this clear understanding that both the Father and the Son are fully God. The activities that they, that he ascribes to them are both the same. They're both involved in creation. They're both involved in salvation. They both give us life. And so these are working together. And he emphasizes quite clearly that they are one God and not two separate gods. They're both to be worshipped together. But coming back then to what Paul's getting at here, we we see that having established the importance of love, he's now affirming that the way that we that we live our love out must be built upon truth as well. And this is the truth that he's emphasizing. And he's not trying to play them off against each other. He's emphasizing that love and truth work together. Um, now, we're going to come very shortly to thinking about how to put them together. But let's think for a moment about the importance of truth. Because as Christians, we do need to think about the importance of building our lives on what is true. The Lord Jesus himself said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And so we realise that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who gives us what is true, what we really need to know. And again, when we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, we find him pointing to the scriptures and he says things like, not a jot or tittle, not the smallest stroke or dot of a pen will pass away from the law, the scriptures, until everything is fulfilled, until everything's accomplished. So he had the highest regard for the scriptures. And that then means as Christians, uh, what we've always done and what we do as Christians is to carefully read the Bible and carefully seek to understand it so that we come to know everything that it addresses and so we know everything that God wants us to know. Now one of the things that we need to do then when we're reading the Bible is start to put together what it says from various different places. We need to synthesize what it says on different topics because God didn't give us a textbook or a dictionary or an encyclopedia so that you could just look up different topics and say oh he says that about that. God gave us a book of stories, a book of poetry, a book of parables, a book of prophetic visions, a book of letters, all written in the context of people's lives. And what we then need to do is we need to go through very carefully and start to think about how we put this together in different ways. 
Uh, and that then helps us develop what's known as systematic theology. It sounds complicated, but it just means that you put it together in a systematic way, what you know about God and what he says. Take, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity. You'll search your Bible in vain for a text that says there is one God in three persons, the Trinity, comprised of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You'll not find a verse that says that. But what you do is you go through the Bible and you find various passages which talk about how both the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are together to be worshipped. You find passages where they're treated as one. And you find all of these different passages and you put them together and you start to develop a synthesis of what the Bible says on that topic. And the reason why that's important, and the reason why I'm emphasising that, is because it's important to get individual bits of knowledge and, to, and individual verses and to spin them off in completely wrong directions. And that's what people do a lot of the time. There are people who say, for example, that Jesus is not fully God or that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are just different forms of God and he just like morphs himself into different forms at different times. Or people say that Jesus became God at a certain point in time. And there are various verses that you could actually point to and say, oh yeah, that proves my point. But the problem with that kind of approach to the Bible is it doesn't put it together. And that's why we need to read the Bible carefully and think about putting it together so that we see what God says coherently about a topic and not just spin things off in our own little direction because we like those particular ideas. Now that might seem like a very basic point, but it's an important one because putting together the Bible and what it says about a topic will affect then how we live our lives. And the problem with these Corinthians is they've taken one truth, like there's only one God, and they've spun it off in the direction of saying, well, we can do whatever we want because everybody knows there's only one God and we can eat in an idol's temple because, you know, an idol doesn't really exist. And so they grasp a bit of truth and spin off in the wrong direction because they're not putting it together. And most importantly, they're not putting it together in love. And so that's then what Paul comes to in the next section, in verses 7 through to 13. How do we put together truth in our lives in a way which is loving towards other Christians? So after having surveyed the truth that they should hold in verse 7, he says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. It's knowledge that there's only one true God and there's no idols. Now, what he means here isn't, of course, that there are some Christians who don't know that there's only one true God. It's a fairly basic part of the gospel. There's only one God um, that we come to know. Nevertheless, the problem is that there's some of them that just haven't fully grasped the implications of that. It hasn't really sunk in for them. And so Paul then he elaborates further and he says, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to God. So, I mean, they've grown up surrounded by idols. And then if they're then expected to eat food that has been offered to an idol, yes, they might know intellectually that there's only one God, but they still feel compromised. They still feel that they're sitting down to eat with idols, and that defiles their conscience, and it breaks their sense of communion with God. And this is a real problem. Um, and clearly then some of the, the Corinthians, what they had been suggesting is that actually it's quite important for Christians to to demonstrate the strength of their faith by sitting down to eat in idols' temples. Maybe they were something, saying something along the lines of, well, if you are truly convinced that there's only one God, then you'll not worry about sitting down eating food that's been offered to idols because you'll know that it's absolutely fine. And they're trying to emphasize that this is a really good thing. You know, strengthen your faith. Show, show what you really believe by, by engaging in these dodgy activities. And Paul says in verse 8, look, food does not bring us near to God. 
We are no worse if we don't eat, and no better if we do. So no, you don't need to eat in the idol's temple to try and show that your faith's particularly strong or anything like that, whatever they're arguing. And in this sense, you know, it doesn't matter whether you eat food or not. That's not going to make you any better or worse before God. But eating food may cause harm to others. Eating food in idols' temples may definitely cause harm to others, even if it doesn't do anything to you. And so he says, be careful that the exercise of your rights or the exercise of your liberty um, uh, doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. Now I suspect that he's using the word rights or liberty here with inverted commas. He says you've got your rights, you've got your liberty to do what you want. Fair enough, but if you go ahead and do that, then you're causing massive problems for other Christians. In verse 10 he says, well what happens if a weaker Christian sees you eating in the idol's temple? So the weaker Christian comes along, like we've already said, they see the meeting in the idol's temple, and they think, oh, it's okay to eat in an idol's temple. I'll go and join my friends next week as they celebrate somebody's birthday in the idol's temple. And so the distinction between their old life and their new life is erased and they just sucked back into idolatry. And so Paul says quite sternly in verse 11 that this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. They're destroyed by it. So much for your knowledge then. In fact, a lot of good is the knowledge when it does the opposite to them of what Christ has done. Christ died for them because he loves them. And what do you do? Well, you're just interested in yourself. And you're quite willing to destroy them. Destroy their, their faith and their communion with God. And so Paul says in verse 12, that this is nothing short of sin against Christ. That's how serious it is. And so Paul wraps up his conclusion in verse, at the end, at verse 12 at the end, he says, uh, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Whatever it is that could be leading a brother or sister into sin, Paul's willing to cut it out because he doesn't want any brother or sister to fall into sin. And so he's basically saying it's one thing to know the truth and it's another thing to actually put it into practice in a loving way in your life. So we come then to the question of how we put this into practice in our own lives. I doubt very much that most of us have struggled with the question of whether or not we ought to eat in an idol's temple. Well, maybe in some cultures you might actually struggle with that. I realise that in some cultures it's more of an issue, but in the West it's not so much of an issue. But think about these kinds of questions that Christians do face in the West. Um, should a Christian go to a nightclub? What about a Christian praying publicly alongside a Muslim at a public event? Would that be appropriate? What about Christians who maybe go to see a film which has got inappropriate scenes in it and they themselves feel it doesn't do them any harm and so they feel they can go and see it, it's fine. Is that okay? Or what about Christians campaigning alongside non-Christian religious groups for issues of common concern? Is that okay? And I think if we raise these issues to the Apostle Paul today, he would say that actually, if you take any one of those questions, you could probably produce something in the Bible and, or some truth from Scripture and say that, make some kind of argument for it and say that actually it's okay. You could produce plausible arguments for any of these things. But for Paul, he would say, the bigger question is not, you know, does this fit with your knowledge? How does it fit with love? How does it fit with love towards other Christians? So, 
you might find some justification for going to a nightclub and saying that actually it's okay, you're not doing anything wrong. But what if another Christian sees you there? Uh, what are they going to think? Are they going to think that kind of lifestyle is okay? Are they going to make assumptions about what you're doing and think that actually that's okay? And I think Paul would then say on those grounds, then don't do it. Uh, or what about, um, what if a weaker Christian sees you praying alongside a Muslim at a public event? What are they going to think? Are they going to think, yeah, we're all just worshipping the same God? Uh, and so they get sucked into this idea that we're all just the same. And this, so we're not being loving towards our brothers and sisters, even though we might not be doing anything actually wrong. Um, or what about you know Christians campaigning alongside other non-Christian religious groups for issues of common moral concern? Again, you could, you could argue for that, but... What if that leads people to think, oh, religions, they're all just the same. We're all just working towards the same moral values. And, and so our distinctiveness as Christians is actually erased. And so that's not loving. And on those grounds, Paul would say that that's wrong. We shouldn't be doing that. And I mean, sometimes these issues are complex. I'm not trying to give definitive rulings in all of these issues. I'm saying that what we need to do is what Paul is doing here and think about Yes, we know certain things, but is it loving to do it? Until Paul arrives at the conclusion that if what I'm doing is potentially going to lead Christians away from God, then I'm never going to do it. Even if I'm perfectly entitled to do it, I'm not going to do it if it's going to lead them into sin, if it's going to lead them away from God. And that then for Paul is how we ought to live as Christians. And so the Christian life is rarely one we have to just think about ourselves and what we know one in which we have to think about others and whether or not we're living in love towards them. And we then need to think about the weakest members of our assembly, uh, of our congregation, and think about, well, how are they going to be affected by what I'm going to do? Because ultimately what Paul would have us do is to put on the mindset, the attitude of Christ Jesus himself, because he was the one who laid aside all his rights he was entitled to the praise and worship of the world, to be recognised as the Son of God who had entered into this world. And he laid aside all of his rights, all of his entitlements, all of his privileges, the things that he was owed, and submitted himself to death on the cross. And didn't demand things from us, but set aside everything so that we would receive everything set aside all of his entitlements so that with the authority that he had, he would give us eternal life. And when we put on that kind of mindset, that reframes what it means to have knowledge, what it means to have liberty, what it means to have rights to do things. Because we no longer have the right to lead other people into sin. We no longer think in terms of, yeah, I'm entitled to do this. Or this is my right to do this. But we think in terms of, how is this going to affect my brothers and sisters? Is this going to build them up? Or is this going to lead them away from God? So knowledge is important. Truth is important. But we need to balance it with love and do everything out of love for one another. May God help us to do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in these complex issues that were raised for the Apostle Paul, he guides us very skillfully through your spirit.